live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. We are And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. Now, welcome our hosts, John the Vernomatic Verno and Metal Forever Mark. Good evening, everybody. It's Thursday. Welcome to this week's show. I'm the Vernomatic. Thursday night, brand new content always drops. Visit the MetalMayhemROC.com website. There you'll find direct links to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. However you consume your podcasting content, it's there. Download past shows, subscribe, review. That kind of stuff helps the bottom line. Sign up to our email newsletter list. There you'll receive weekly updates on new shows, merchandise, and promotional contests. Well, tonight we're back to original content. We have a new show segment that we were proud to introduce. It's called The History of Heavy Metal. And what we do, I invite a couple listeners back onto the show, and we have a roundtable discussion, and we uh, concentrate on a different year. Well, we decided to do a 15-year range starting in the year 1973. I feel, along with some of uh, the Metal Mayhem correspondents, that was really the birth of heavy metal and hard rock coming from the, the 60s and early 70s. That's when stuff was really starting to wake up. So I went into the archives, I dug up a couple correspondents, and I'm proud and excited to welcome to tonight's show from Motorlord, Ian O'Rourke. He's the lead guitarist and vocalist. Ian, welcome to Metal Mayhem ROC. Vernomatic, I am glad to be back here. I'm excited to be with you and our uh, other co-host here. Yeah, uh, we have a, a fan favorite from the outskirts of New Jersey, Metal Mayhem ROC correspondent, Metal Walt. Metal Walt, welcome back to Metal Mayhem. Verno and Ian, good to hear you guys again. And yes, uh, Metal Walt coming to you from his Metal Walt in uh, northern New Jersey. Ready to rock the horns tonight. So you two are uh, fan favorites. You've both been on the show. You contribute with content and um i got excited when we were talking off air and we decided to start this series the history of heavy metal tonight we're going to tackle the year 1973 and with that we've decided to you know give you listeners our opinion our interpretation our favorite bands of the era and what we know as experienced rockers what was going on then and you know, just share our history. Well, what do you know about 1973? 73 was a very interesting year. It was not uncommon for bands to release sometimes two albums in one year. And I think there's a testament that uh, several bands released multiple albums that year. And again, that was a sign of the times. Um, I think you saw a lot of the heavy hitters um, from, let's say, the U.K., and uh, maybe even Europe, you know, continuing to follow up with releases that came out of the, the early 70s. And I think you saw a lot of, let's say, debut albums um, and also some really interesting information that kind of flies under the radar about, let's say, bands that, that have their origins in 1973 
but maybe didn't release music that year. So I think there's definitely a lot to cover and uh, should be a good discussion. Ian, um, you're a little younger than us. You're in your um, early 50s, I believe. What do you remember about 73? And what's your experience with some of the bands in the music from that era? I will be 50 this September. 73, uh, like Walt had just said there, when you look at the, the, the biggest thing with this, is, and, and, and you have to not, uh, not discount the fact that a lot of the bands that released debuts or that were going or that would come to be well-known bands for us got their origins around the same time as the big heavy hitters, the, the Zeppelins, the Sabbath, the Deep Purple. Um, and then I had mentioned you guys off there, even Uriah Heep. You know, when you look at those four bands from the UK, now when you start seeing what is coming after them, you can see the shape that they that they made, what they caused in their wake to for what was going to next the next level of hard rock and, and eventually heavy metal be um, for us to listen to. So I mean, there's a lot of really good stuff that people should really take the time and go back and check out. What are some of the bands that some of your favorites from that era? What bands should we be checking out? What are you digging? Well, the the first and foremost album, believe it or not, that that is my my ultimate favorite from that time period is the debut from Montrose. And if you go back and you listen to bands like Judas Priest, bands like Iron Maiden, uh, Van Halen you know, that was a seminal album in that new direction. But aside from that, I mean, you had the debut albums from Queen, you had the debut albums from Aerosmith, um, you had, you know, uh, continued growth from uh, bands like uh, Nazareth and Uriah Heep, and, you know, uh, you know, just so many great bands that really still stick to me personally, to this day, but Montrose, that self-titled debut is probably the pinnacle for me when it comes to that year, just because sonically it was completely different than everything else that was out there. Oh, I agree. That's that. Now that's the American side of things. Uh, Walt, let me ask you this. You're pretty knowledgeable on the European and English side of things. What was going on in 73 with the European bands? Yeah, so I think a couple big things to call out here. I think you have, uh, you know, some heavy hitter bands bringing out some, uh, some let's say, albums that, in my personal opinion, are met with uh, mixed reviews. Um, I think, you know, you have the infamous Led Zeppelin album, Houses of the Holy. Um, I think um, Deep Purple, uh, Who Do We Think We Are? That was a big release, and that came out very early in the year, in January. Now, commenting on that Deep Purple album, I think this was a, a changing time for that band um, in looking at the, the track listing and, you know, let's say songs that people would be familiar with. The only one that really is, is called out is a uh, woman from Tokyo that to this day, some 40 something years later is still a mainstay on classic rock radio. Um, to be honest, they, uh, this was a, a band that was burnt out and coming off of uh, three or four albums prior and the massively successful Made in Japan live album, which was released the year before. I think this was just a, a tough nut to crack in terms of really making a killer follow-up. And 
truth be told, that was the demise of the band, at least from um, that particular lineup, the classic lineup. Um, as time moves on, that actually was the last release with Roger Glover and Ian Gillen. And uh, they moved on to uh, eventually what would become the Coverdale uh, Glenn Hughes lineup, and Burn was released the next year. So I think that was a, a big milestone for that band. Um, I think for Black Sabbath, um, it was their fifth release, I believe it was, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Um, and, you know, any metal fan will will testify to this, that this was also a sort of a, a, a new period of sound for that band. You know, they had, again, come off um, the, the very successful Volume 4 album. And in thinking about the tracks on the Volume 4 album, they were just very down-tuned and doomy, you know, very crunching-type riffs just loaded all the way through that album. Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath had the introductions of keyboards. It had the introduction of, let's say, orchestration. Mm-hmm. It, like Spiral Architect that had, you know, could have been, you know, an or- orchestrated-type song and um, I think this was also something you saw through the album where the riffs were turning into let's say more melodic riffs than sort of the down tune riffs so I mean think of the, the main riff in Sabra Cadabra um, that song it's, it's very happy it's very upbeat you know and uh, a very big change in course for them so again I think that was another key pivotal uh, release from that year yeah, that was the period. Now, that album almost came out. It was in December of 73. And again, that was the period these bands are releasing one, if not two releases a year. Uh, what about some American metal, Walt? Uh, Alice Cooper, any of those kind of bands? Yeah, so um, in, in in terms of Al- Alice Cooper, I mean, again, that was the one artist that comes to mind that re- did release two albums. Um the band released Billion Dollar Babies in February and then came back uh, later in the year in uh, November with Muscle of Love. And, you know, to me, these are, are two contrasting albums in terms of the memories behind them. I mean, when you think Billion Dollar Babies and you look at the track listing down there, it's it's a stellar release. I mean, you have elected... Billion Dollar Babies, No More Mr. Nice Guy, Sick Things, um, you know, the staple that to this day he still does in his live show, I Love the Dead. Um, I mean, these are very, very strong tracks that that really stood the the length of metal time. And, uh, you know, again, 40 years later are very common to most fans and, and to his repertoire for his show. Now, subsequently, uh, the second release, Muscle of Love, um, I think, you know, fell a little bit flat. Certainly not a bad album. I mean, you really have the title track as is as a memorable track, um, but the rest of it is 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 kind of uh, let's say a little bit lesser in quality. Um, and so you see the the contrast and differences that can you imagine? You know, a band putting out several releases in one year, and you have one that's a smash and the other one that's a complete flop. You know, pretty amazing stuff. Uh, Ian, this question's for you. What about some of these other English bands that you're more familiar with? Now, you briefly touched on bands like Uriah Heep and Nazareth. Are these the offshoots of some of these uh, other established bands? What's the history of these bands? So Uriah Heep and uh, Uriah Heep and Nazareth uh, had already established themselves in the scene, but... Um, you had the formation of what would 
what is bad company, which came from the ashes of free and uh, with Nick Ralph's coming over from Mata Hoople. And that same year, Mata Hoople released their album Mott, which was a starter or there was their debut. And that was something anybody that's into the, the glam rock scene that was going on in the seventies. I mean, the, you know, between Mata Hoople and the suite and stuff like that, these are pivotal albums for um, hard rock. And, you know, eventually, you know, like with the, the hair metal movement later on, but even bands that were maybe, um, not trying to be as glammy still took a nod towards these guys because they put out a lot of really good solid music. And then like to piggyback off what, uh, metal Walter just said, you know, Nazareth that year was the, the time when they really made a shift from what was more their bluesy rock kind of sound that they had going on early. Roger Glover from deep purple came in to produce their two albums, Razmanaz and loud and proud. And it's a, a marked, you know, removal from their their earlier music, a lot more sheen and a little bit more power and, and, and tenacity to it. So that was really big stuff. And then, like I, uh, I think I had mentioned, or I hope I had mentioned, Queen had their debut album that year, you know. And you can't turn on classic rock radio without hearing songs like "Keep Yourself Alive," which was the first big single off that album. So there was really a lot of good stuff that was going on. On, on that side of the pond, you know, you know, the, the formation of bands or the evolution of bands. I mean, in 73 was when Michael Schenker joined UFO going on the next year to release probably, you know, one of their better albums phenomenon, which was a big step away from the early space rock sound they had. And then Rob Halford joins Judas Priest as a vocalist. And we all know what happened with that band. So, I mean, there was a lot of solid stuff. Well, and Ian, you may guys may be able to answer this for me. I'm always curious. What do you guys think? Were these bands like Queen? You just mentioned Queen's first album was in 73. What do you guys think? What, how popular were these bands? I, I honest to God think that when you're, when you're talking in regards to Queen, Queen was an anomaly based on the fact that they were completely different even as much as um there were grand compositions by led zeppelin or even uriah heap any of those bands at the time when queen came onto the scene they were doing something that was completely different than everybody else and wrapping it up in a hard rock veneer if you ever get a chance and, and you go back and you look at some of the early concert footage when they did the original version of um, we will rock you. It sounds like a thrash song. It's just Tom Newton chugging all the way through and Freddie Mercury's up front commanding the crowd like he always did. So I think that with Queen, it was just that they were so dynamic and unique in their own way, but still grabbing from all of the same elements that these other bands were that it, they really just stood right out. And that helped them propel them, you know, going forward down the road, even after the demise of uh, Freddie Mercury. What's your take, uh, Walt? Yeah, I, I would, uh, I would uh, second that. 
Um, if I may add, I think to to add on maybe some additional, let's say, flavor to the the way this discussion is going, I think um, you also had, let's say, additional bands that were getting their origins. And I think that's a very key thing to touch on here. It's not just about the releases specifically, but, you know, who started, maybe who was breaking up. And uh, doing a little research here, I think uh, Ian called out uh, Bad Company. But um, little known facts here. Um, ACDC got their start in 1973. It was later in the year, but it was the time when the Young Brothers formed um, their first variation of ACDC with Dave Evans uh, on vocals. Um, Another one that gets called out that maybe is not, uh, let's say, specifically associated with 1973 is Kiss. Uh, Kiss was originally called Wicked Lester, um, and they put their original demo out in 1972. And then shortly after that, in the beginning of the 73, is I believe when they got signed and recorded their debut album, which was then released a year later. Well, um, well excuse me. Well, that Wicked Lester, um, you know, they had different guys in there. So that band was retired, and then Gene and Paul started over, and then they got Paul or uh, Ace and Peter. So it was a different band. Okay. I think, um, you know, my, my last one that I'm throwing in here is uh, I, I did not know this, and I'm a, a major Rush fan, but uh, Rush also uh, debuted in 1973. Um, and there's a fact out there that uh, they played their first ever concert um, with the original lineup with John Rutsey on drums um, late in 1973, uh, opening up for the New York Dolls in Toronto. Uh, so, again, I think we can all see here that it's, uh, you know, the theme here is that, you know, you have the origins of a lot of really classic and bands that have been around for a long, 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 long time. It made it really made a footprint in the music scene. Oh, sure, sure. It's And it's not just, um, you know, first release date 73, because like going back to Judas Priest, you know, they were doing, even though their first album wasn't until 74, you know, there was uh, demos out and there was not commercially released singles, but they were in the studio recording. And, you know, when Rob took over vocals, you know, so it's it's, um, you know, it's it's a slippery slope. Seventy three isn't the exact born on date of these bands, but I get what you're saying. Uh, now, more Canadian bands, um, you know, you had bands like uh, I think BTO were coming around at that time. Um, Max Webster, you know, some of those bands, Frank Marino, Mahogany Rush. I'm not sure if Frank Marino was 73, but, you know, you guys know anything about any of these Canadian bands? Well, yeah, I was actually going to pipe in after, uh, you know, Walt had, had gotten uh, done speaking. But, yeah, BTO and Max Webster. I mean, Max Webster with Kim Mitchell. I mean, might as well go for a soda. You can't turn on your fucking radio you know, in the seventies and eighties without hearing that song. So, I mean, he, he really, that was some cool stuff and, you know, not to be discounted, but um, when we were talking off air, you know, one of the bands that I think we all know about near and dear to us um, journey uh, with Neil Schoen and Greg Raleigh, you know, they got their start 73 Uh, cheap trick, you know, was another big band, Kansas, was another big band that, that, you know, their formation, you know, is documented as 73. And, you know, you, you can't oversimplify the importance of 
a band like the dictators that got their start, not only their impact on punk with, because they were a key influence for the Ramones, but Rasta boss, you know, ended up going on later to help form uh, man of war. So, I mean, you know, there's some, some pretty distinct um, musical roots that, that stretch back to 73. And you can see where, as we, you know, uh, Walt had mentioned too, as well, the, the, the growth that was starting to occur musically, even though some bands were deviating to a more, let's say radio friendly or, or, you know, uh, they were, you know, having more pop ideations or experimentation, whatever it may be that was going on. But the, in the core of the, the, the hard rock that was around, there was still that intensity, that tenacity that, that people were still driving forward. And that was going to be something that was going to carry from year to year to year to year as it goes forward. And I think that's the interesting part about this discussion. We're going to see that as we keep going. You know, I never knew that uh, Ross, the boss was in the, in the dictators. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. I didn't yep. know that. Yep. And so was Marco uh, Mendoza or not Marco Mendoza, Mark Mendoza, the bass player from Twisted Sister. Oh, Mark, the animal Mendoza. Yes. Yeah. Yep. He, he started, he was a bass player. Part of the shtick was the, the one guy used to dress up in a leotard like a, like a wrestler. It was the lead singer. Um, and you had him who, who he was not a uh, easily intimidated individual, I guess, you know, based on his size. And then you had Mark Mendoza on bass, who was also an intimidating form with his size playing bass in the band. And then the funny part is then you got Ross the boss who's, you know, this little New Yorker sitting over on the side, just wailing away on his SG. So yeah, that's some pretty cool stuff there. If you ever get a chance to go back and check them out. Mm. Wow. That's interesting because, you know, I think this exemplifies that. Yeah. 1973 just isn't the big, um, you know, the deep purples and the Sabbaths and the Zeppelins, they were well on their way into their careers it's more the the start of some of these bands that came along later in the decade. I I can't get over that. I just never knew. Uh, I guess uh, Vernomatic has to do his heavy metal homework a little better. I didn't even know Ross the Boss and and uh, Mark Mendoza were in the Dictators, and they were like a punk band, weren't they? They were like a um, that was probably the they were the seminal, I guess heavier garage rock band that was probably, if you had to pinpoint the origins of punk, they were probably one of the ones same time New York Dolls were coming out. I mean, 73, their debut album uh, was released as well. So these guys are all down from the, you know, the, the five boroughs, uh, you know, area. And they all had that, you know, even with the Ramones, you know, that that's where, Joey uh, Ramon had made mention that the dictators were like his biggest influence for a band just because of the uh, intensity and the, the rawness and the power. Now they didn't, you know, play minute and a half long songs much, but they kept it, you know, pretty short and sweet when they were doing most of their uh, material for sure. Hey, here's one. Maybe we passed up in our research um, is a, uh, an Aerosmith release in 1973. Um, I mean, 
you know, this was uh, the songs on the, the album here, Dream On, Mama Kin, Walking the Dog. I mean, uh, again, these are also very, let's say, well-known and legendary staples in the Aerosmith catalog. And just, I mean, personally thinking, wow, I, I, I can't place in my mind that an album with songs like that would have been released that long ago. To me, that's something that maybe was always stuck in Oh, around 1979, 1980. I mean, to think that I was three years old when that was released is an amazing, uh, amazing point. Well, the, what, what's cool about that is, you know, some of those songs off that Aerosmith debut end up uh, as covers 10, 15 years later. Rat did Walk in the Dog, either on the EP or the first one. Guns N' Roses, you know, they did a couple covers that was on some of their albums. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, it's not necessarily, you know, it, do you guys consider it heavy? You know, what's heavy for 1973? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Berno, we, we had a, a prior episode where we debated some newer tracks to say, is this metal or is it not metal? This reminds me of that debate. And uh, I think it's uh, all subjective based on your taste. I mean, I would never categorize Aerosmith as metal. But uh, they certainly fit in the category of just driving hard rock that's also radio-friendly. And again, I, I think, as Ian said here, there was also you know, quite a few of the bands that were, were also radio-friendly that came out of this time frame as well. So you can certainly match up in that perspective. What do you think, Ian? What other stuff are you into from that period? Any of your favorites? Any Mount Rushmore bands? What's your go-to from that era? Well... You know, not to discount, I mean, you had mentioned before, I mean, you know, and that was something that I had tried to deviate just a, a little mention to when we first got started. But, you know, Judas Priest Oregon, they back to 69 when, you know, bands like uh, Sabbath and Zeppelin were, you know, plotting the, the demise of, of uh, you know, pop music, uh, you know, for the rest of the world. But, Aerosmith was another band, you know, 69 was, you know, basically when they got their start and they were just like these other guys honing, you know, their skills and, and fine tuning their chops. And that's where a lot of the sonic uh, differences is, you know, they were all really just, even like I said, with Nazareth, you know, they were very that, you know, uh, free, or Humble Pie, you know, they had that edgy kind of blues rock thing going. But now you get past the beginnings of the 70s, past the releases, the you know, the, the monumental releases by Sabbath and Zeppelin and Purple and even Uriah Heep, as I had mentioned before. Now you see the blossom that is becoming hard rock, which eventually is going to take on the, you know, is going to spurn itself and, and become... Uh, heavy metal but you know as far as Rushmore stuff I mean there's so many great albums you know the 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 things that stick out to me are so BOC Blue Oyster Cult puts out Tyranny and Mutation which is their second album the first album was a little bit more psychedelic feeling there was it was it was not as Tyranny and Mutation definitely starts to put them on the map, you can see where they are an American, you know, as people used to say, you know, these were the, the they were the, the American Sabbath, so to speak, you know, with what they were, uh, their, you know, the riffage and the song titles. Um, you know, Leonard Skinner 
you know, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not metal, but I mean, as far as Southern rock, the hard rock side of things, Skinner put out their debut that year. I mean, you cannot discount that band just for what they did in that short period of time. And the impact is still held later on. So that's another one that kind of falls on the list. Um, Budgie, you know, big change for those guys. And they are a band that, you know, the mighty Metallica uh, even draws influence from Budgie, particularly Cliff uh, Burton when he was alive. Um, they, their second album, they put out huge difference from what, it, what the, the prior album was, you know? So, you know, you, you take that into consideration with some of the ones we mentioned before. I mean, if I had to, if I really had to pick a Mount Rushmore, I definitely got to go with the debut from Queen, the debut from Montrose. I'd probably pick the debut from Aerosmith. And I really kind of got to go loud and proud by Nazareth. That would, those four albums right there would be, that would put somebody well on their way to getting a full understanding of just what was going on at that time period in, in hard rock. You mentioned Michael Schenker and UFO earlier, but the Scorpions, you know, their first one came out in 72 with the, the Lonesome Crow. Uh, and then, you know, in 73, that's when Schenker uh, left and Yuli Roth came into the, um, came into the fold for the Scorpions. Now that's that, that, that period, you know, you talk about uh, a band that's, it has multiple chapters. I think it parallels like the Judas Priest. You know, they both both bands had their seventies. Uh, uh, every album they built on their their catalog, and then they had more commercial success in the uh, late seventies and early eighties. Um, you guys uh, into any of that early Scorpions, Lonesome Crow, Taken by Fours, uh, Virgin Killer, any of that stuff? Pass for me. That's a hard pass. Not a Scorpion fan? No, I, I, I was going to basically just say I'm not I familiar with it, but not really. And I don't know much, a whole lot about that era. Oh, okay. Uh, Ian? So I will agree with you. I mean, and there is a, a line of similarity between, you know, the, the early priest before they released the, even, even with the release of the first album, you know, rock and roll to me in 74. We'll get there, that I know eventually, but um, definitely a little bit more reserved hard rock. Um, but, you know, you look at the first couple Scorpions albums as well as the first couple UFO albums, you know, very space rock, you know, with the Scorpions, very kraut rock, you know, I guess in some of their stuff. But by the time they get to, um, you know, uh, in trance or Virgin Killer, like you mentioned, I mean, now you're seeing things completely different. By the time they get to Taken by Force and they put out the Tokyo tapes that, you know, that next year, I mean, now this is, this is a band that's really causing a lot of, of uh, noise, you know, and, and they're making some amazing music at the same time. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, that's something we're going to, we'll definitely, you know, I mean, I know that we've done in a few. 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> space rock. That's a great adjective, but it's true. Uh, another another band or artist, uh, Ted Nugent. You know, he was, um, came out of the 60s with the Amboy Dukes, and it was right around 73 where it switched from the Amboy Dukes to Ted Nugent in the Amboy Dukes, and then Nugent went solo. So uh, any of you guys uh, old Nugent fans? You know, from the beginning, Amboy Dukes, even though they had the one song. Yeah, I mean, I I can say I'm a very big uh, Nugent fan. Um, you know, I you know can honestly say I, I only know a few of those Amboy Dukes songs from, you know, Journey to the Center of the Mind and uh, maybe a few others. But, yeah, I, I mean, I think that also was a pivotal time in 73 with a release. And I think shortly after that, maybe within a year or two, is when Nugent went you know, kind of solo and, and broke out. And we know what they, is, is history. Um, I mean, you know, Double Lab Gonzo a little bit later. And, and he was, I mean, probably he and Peter Frampton were probably the two biggest rock stars in the in the mid to, you know, 75, 77 period of time there. So it was definitely a stepping stone for him to come out on his own as a solo artist, no doubt. Yeah, I, um, I'm not very familiar i mean i i know of um some of the album you know or some of the material you know call the wild and then I, what was it fang tooth and claw i think was the the next one which is the last uh ted nugent and the amboy dukes and then he you know goes solo um you can start to see the uh stepping stones of what would become nuge down the road um i think he always always was trying to be um, upfront in in what was going on musically. Um, you know, when he was doing stuff with the with the Amboy Dukes, even with Journey to the Center of the Mind. I mean, you know, you're talking the guy was still cranking Fender Twins with that Birdland guitar and creating the most amazing you know feedback and sustaining distortion that you know that was around at the time. But you know you that's another thing, you know, that we really didn't touch on, you know, the technology of being able to capture these bands was, was changing from year to year to year. You know, you, now you started having where you used to go into the studio, say like the Beatles and you would have four guys with like two mics in a room. And whenever it was time for the vocalist to come up and do his spot singing, he'd step closer to the mic. I mean, that's how they did a lot of stuff early on, you know, so there wasn't a, there wasn't a whole lot of huge change, you know, until you got to the later sixties, then you started to see, okay, well, these guys are playing their instruments a lot louder than they used to be. We need to find a way to make sure that we're capturing that appropriately. So now you started having them go into larger studios where they had isolation rooms and they were able to do things. And now you have more mics that are being brought in because of, more amps, bigger drum kits, those kinds of things. That's going to make a huge difference on the sonic template that you're going to be laying down, uh, you know, when you're recording. Wow, that's something I never um, took in account. That's the musician in you coming through. That's a great point, Ian. Props to you. You know, I think 73 also was probably a time that, uh, you know, you probably started seeing the evolution of maybe bigger, concert type settings i mean you're, you're you're far removed at this point from let's say the, the festivals like woodstock uh 
or Isle of Wight from the late 60s, but you're probably in that space now where you're seeing bands packaging up and you're getting maybe four or five of these bands on one bill going across the country, um, you know, and I, I think it's a time, you know, we've all seen the posters and the memorable pictures and YouTube videos online, but, you know, how many times have you seen bands like that came out of this year headlining Madison Square Garden or, you know, somewhere in, in a field out uh, the California Jam or Wembley Arena in, in London. It was all, I think it was also born of the time of, uh, you know, big stadium rock really, really starting. Oh, sure. Zeppelin, some of those outdoor, outdoor shows. I think it was Zeppelin, uh, Song Remains the Same at Madison Square Garden in 73. And you're right. This may have been the start of the arena rock stuff. You know, these, uh, uh, these tours bunched together that you mentioned. Yeah, and the one thing that I'd like to add on to that, I had mentioned before, you know, with the formation of bands, that Journey actually became Journey in 73. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go back and try to do some researching, I can't remember if I, I think I stumbled across it on YouTube, but prior to them releasing their debut album, um, which I think might have been early 74, they recorded a live show in Hawaii, and it's actually done the old way that they used to record stereo live for you know auditoriums or stadiums or anything, where they actually recorded, and the guy that was doing the dissertation or the, the you know uh, information about this recording actually tells you that there is a live mic out in front of the stage, stage left, and then there's another one stage right. And what they did was they measured them off equally so that way they could capture the left and right stereo spectrum sound of a live recording. And that's how a lot of live albums early on were done. It wasn't until I think by the time you get to Kiss Alive that they started doing more where they were pulling from the board. Yeah. And putting that into the recording. You know, here's a fun fact. Um, that Led Zeppelin was 1973, recorded July 27th, 1973. It's today. Oh, my God. Yes, it was. <laughs> well, it was, it was recorded the 27th through 29th of July. But, you know, it was three nights at Madison Square Garden. Jimmy Page, pictures of a chugging Jack Daniels out of the fucking bottle backstage. This, that's one of the, the images that always sticks in my head yeah. about that. You know, this is my take with Led Zeppelin. You know, I'm a fan of Zeppelin. You know, Sabbath and Zeppelin, okay? You know, you say the, the, the forefathers of metal. Well, it's pretty safe to say. But Led Zeppelin had the first, more than Sabbath, the imagery of early heavy metal, I think, you know, with um, maybe they also shared the mantle of like the beginning of cock rock with, you know, Robert Plant. But it was just just with the Zofo and the the stuff that they did. And that's just my take. I just thought Led Zeppelin was just on another level for the time that they were there. Ian, what's your take on Led Zeppelin? You can never have any discussion 
about hard rock or heavy metal without having Led Zeppelin be mentioned. Period. Just like with Black Sabbath, just like you said. I mean, if you if if anybody ever tries to have the discussion and discount the importance in that evolution, when you go from the loud guitars of you know Cream and the Who and Jimi Hendrix, the next logical step is that Led Zeppelin and the Black Sabbath and the Deep Purple and as I mentioned the Uriah Heap. I mean, when you look at the importance that they have. And at this time, yes, they were, I mean, there was no band bigger. There was no band bigger probably until, if you had to argue, probably until um, the late seventies when ACDC was really starting to get, you know, they were kind of getting that kind of uh, momentum behind them. And then, you know, as you and I, uh, you know, both agree on, I mean, the mighty Van Halen, you know, when they came later, you know, but Zeppelin in 73, I mean, the, 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 the houses of the Holy, the, the, the live concert video itself is a seminal. It, it's one of those monumental things that us as fans, you, you enjoy it. You, it's something that you would, you know, have to say, Oh yeah, definitely. You probably, when we were in our teens, saw it umpteen times, just like we did with the wall and you know Tommy and all those those movies back then because we just wanted to soak as much in as we could so yeah i wasn't a huge fan of the album at the time uh there was a lot of funk influences somehow in there but um it still had some really solid stuff and you can never go wrong with listening to john bonham play the drums well, uh, Metal Walt, any parting shots before uh, we let you get back to uh, what Metal Walt does on uh, Tuesday nights? Here's a, here's a little way to maybe wrap up 1973, okay? Yep. I just took a look at, let's say, the, the highlighted releases that you know all the, the, the sites call out. And if you think about, let's say, the songs that were popular then and are still being played 48 years later the list is bigger than you think and i'll just read off a handful but now tell me this isn't q1043 or something you hear on sirius xm you know over and over probably don't want to hear these songs again but they're out there and that just tells you how these uh these songs and these bands really you know have stood the persistence of time i mean dancing days in the ocean from zeppelin billion dollar babies no more mr nice guy I mean, when you get into the Leonard Skinner piece, which we didn't touch on, Tuesday's Gone, Give Me Three Steps, Freebird, Woman from Tokyo, uh, Dream On, Mama Kin, Rock Candy. I mean, that's a playlist right there for, for about two hours. And, you know, just think that this came out of one calendar year of music. I think that's an amazing feat to look back and say it was a pretty, let's say, memorable year. Freebird was on um, Skinner's first album. So it says. Hmm. Maybe we need to research that further, but yeah, no, that yeah, that that's awesome. Oh, I agree. You know, they don't call it classic rock for nothing, but um, that's why we do this. It's like just us getting together as friends and uh, you know 
hard rock and heavy metal heads, you know, we educate each other and hopefully, you know, something to share with the listeners that maybe they didn't know either. Cause I certainly, I could listen to you two all night. <laughs> this is true. I mean, through this exercise, if you think about it, right. Like I wouldn't, I had a research. I couldn't think of anything off the top of my head. Oh, what was 1973? All right. I know there was a Sabbath, a purple is that, yeah, of course. But you really had a read on it to really be familiar with the specifics of it. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think it's actually a cool, cool thing to really do like a deep, uh, deep dive in there. Ian, any parting shots? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have to agree. You know, I mean, I, I, I did have to do some research. I, I was fortunate enough, as I'd had discussion with Vernomatic uh, previously, I kind of went on my own uh, spiritual uh <laughs> reawakening several years ago and delved back into a lot of the music of the, uh, the seventies. Um, a lot of the stuff that would be part of the, uh, influence and impact for writing with, uh, motor Lord. Um, but yeah, I mean, to double on what metal wall said, I mean, you think about the albums, I mean, you know, ZZ top, you know, playing on the radio, you know I mean? You're talking trace hombres had, um, LaGrange and um, I forget the other one. No, it just escaped to me. But I mean, you can't run on classic rock media without hearing LaGrange. Um, you know, Riding the Storm Out by Ario Speedwagon. That song came out on that album in 1973. Yep. You, you, we all know and love the live version with Kevin Cronin singing the song originally was out in 73 i mean and that's a badass song you know so i mean there's just so much good material and i you know like i mentioned to you i think any of the listeners that tune in they they owe themselves the opportunity to go back and maybe rediscover some of this stuff and just listen to how music has evolved but during that evolution, there were some gems that, that were created. So I'm glad we're doing this. All right, guys. Well, um, thanks for joining me tonight. And I'm sure both of you will be joining us again as we continue this history of heavy metal here on Metal Mayhem ROC. Um, metal Walt, thank you. Ian from Motorlord, thank you. And, um, you know, we'll be in touch. It was awesome. Ian, you were awesome, man. Depth of knowledge. Likewise, brother. I, I enjoyed this well. I, I am humbled to be in the presence of greatness with you and the Vertomatic being able to do this. But this was a blast, and I can't wait for the next one. Yeah, sounds good, guys. Okay, so uh, that's Metal Mayhem ROC, and we will see you next week. Thanks, folks. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE TV Radio. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.